Welcome to this episode of the Australian Naval History podcast series, where we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I'm Professor Peter Stanley from the University of New South Wales, Canberra, uh, at the Australian Defence Force Academy. And as I grew up in the shipbuilding city of Wyala, this discussion is certainly of interest to me. The Australian shipbuilding industry has commenced the largest shipbuilding program in its history, with over 30 ships, including submarines, frigates and patrol boats. In this episode, our panel of experts will discuss the history of warship construction in Australia to provide some context to this contemporary program. To discuss the story of warship construction in Australia, I'm joined today by Dr. Hone Cuff, uh, recently uh, gained a PhD from the University of Newcastle and is joining the Sea Power Centre as a researcher. So hello and congratulations, Hone. And uh, James Goldrick, a retired Rear Admiral and noted naval historian, who's made a study of warship building in Australia, and Mr. John Jeremy, a former general manager of Cockatoo Island Dockyard, who's written extensively on the history of the shipyard and shipbuilding. Welcome all. First off, Hone, to date, over 260 warships have been built in Australia, but what was the first warship? Well, Peter, there are some competing claims to this title. The mining tender MITRE was the first warship actually built in Australia in 1890 for the Queensland Navy. Uh, for the Australian Navy, HMAS Warrigan, a river-class torpedo boat destroyer, was built in 1911 um, in the UK, disassembled and then reassembled in Australia. And then in 1914, the HMAS Hune, uh, which was also a river-class, became the first warship that was wholly constructed here in Australia. So we've been building warships in Australia for, what, 106 years? Yes, yeah. Okay. John Jeremy, who's built some of those warships, these torpedo boat destroyers were built at Cockatoo Island Dockyard, a place you know well. In a previous series, we had two episodes discussing Cockatoo, but briefly, why were they built on an island, and what was the Australian government's broad strategy for warship construction at the time? There's absolutely no logic in building ships on islands. Um, one of the most important uh, things you need for uh, the efficient operation of a shipyard is access, access by road and rail. And of course, Cockatoo Island was short of that. It was really an accident of history because in the 1840s, um, the uh, government decided to pursue the prospect of building a graving dock in Sydney to dock ships of the Royal Navy. And the location chosen was Cockatoo Island, where not only did the government own the site, but there was a, a labour force, namely convicts, there to build the dock. Uh, and the island was progressively developed uh, between 1857 and the first part of the 20th century, uh, operated uh, by the state government. Uh, in the early part of the 20th century, in the first decade, the New South Wales government uh, saw the opportunity to uh, possibly build ships for the uh, developing Royal Australian Navy uh, and invested a, a lot of money in the expansion of the shipbuilding facilities on Cockatoo Island. Um, when the decision was made to acquire the fleet unit, uh, the, the, the government decided that a number of those ships uh, should be built in Australia. Um, the attitude really was that uh, creating a navy was a lot more than buying ships and training men, but it required also the infrastructure to support it. And the building of ships was part of that. Uh, the Minister for Defence, Senator Pearce, um, said on one occasion, it is equally important to this country that we should commence to make ourselves self-contained, not merely in the manning of ships and the training of officers, 
but in the construction of the vessels themselves. So Warrego was a part of that process. The decision was made to assemble a ship in Australia to give Australian shipbuilders some experience in putting together a modern warship. And a number of, a number of men were sent from Cogtoo Island to Scotland whilst Warrego was being built over there before they came back. Um, the other ships which were to be built in Australia were three more torpedo boat destroyers and a cruiser. Uh, there was what might loosely be described as a bit of a competition between the states, uh, Victoria and New South Wales, um, but the decision was made very quickly that it should be New South Wales and that the site for these should be Cockatoo Island. And so the uh, contracts for the building of these ships went to the New South Wales government uh, in 19, uh, 1912. Uh, thanks, John. Uh, can we stick with those torpedo boat destroyers for a moment? James Goldrick, these torpedo boat destroyers weren't exact replicas of the British ships of the same class, were they? They were modified. So can you explain why this was done? They were modified uh, in, in a key area, which was they were given about twice the endurance, uh, the range that British destroyers were being given at the time. So whereas the typical British destroyer could do about 1,500 nautical miles at 15 knots, Parramatta and her sisters could do nearly 3,000. 3, and this was a simple recognition of the geographic realities of Australia. It's a big place and it's a long coast. And if you're going to operate around Australia, you need endurance. And this uh, need to modify vessels for Australian conditions seems to be a, a common theme in Australian shipbuilding. Could you comment on that? It is a common theme. Um, in general, modifications are essential because Australian conditions and Australian requirements are are pretty demanding. Um, they're demanding in range, they're demanding um, in terms of sea keeping. Uh, recently, uh, American studies of uh, the wave heights and swell heights uh, around Australia confirmed that, you know, even in Australian waters, we're in some of the most difficult uh, conditions in the world. And our ships required a range across a tremendous range of climates. Similarly, um, we need to get more out of our individual ships than, say, bigger navies do. So we may need to look at different solutions, different packages of weapons and sensors. It's something you need to do with discipline, um, and it's something you need to do keeping in mind what is unique to your circumstance as opposed to where just taking something uh, from another country or accepting a, a design uh, where good enough is the enemy of the best. Indeed. And being informed by historical experience might be a part of that uh, decision-making process too. John Jeremy, what were the ambitions of the Australian government for local construction during the Great War? Well, most of the shipbuilding, which was or naval shipbuilding, which was done during World War I, was committed and begun before the war. There were the torpedo boat destroyers and the crews of Brisbane. Um, Cockatoo Island had been purchased from the New South Wales government by the Commonwealth in 1912 uh, to become the first naval dockyard of the Commonwealth of Australia. Um, and the dockyard expanded massively during World War I in terms of facilities and employment. Uh, with something like uh, 1,200 men employed before the war, uh, it expanded to a maximum workforce of some 4,000 by 1919, which was a massive increase. Uh, the program of work at the dockyard included a lot more than just building the warships. 
there was a lot of work on conversion of merchant ships to transports and a lot of ship repair work. Um, and uh, there were considerable delays to those naval programs brought about by shortages of labour, industrial disputation, unfortunately, uh, and uh, loss uh, of parts uh, imported from Britain by war action. Um, so uh, the, the only additional serious naval construction which was begun during the war was a second cruiser which became HMAS Adelaide and her construction was very severely affected uh, by the war and its effect on the supply of components uh, from the United Kingdom. Mm, thank you. Uh, Hone, can we pick up this idea of the changes that Cockatoo Island experienced? Could you talk about some of the financial and particularly the workforce challenges in delivering a program on that scale at that time? Sure. So in addition to really the immense cost of shipbuilding, as the war drew on, we had to grapple with raw material shortages, and this was steel in particular. Um, and as, as John touched on, refitting vessels, particularly merchant vessels, was one way we sort of attempted to save on expenses and resources while continuing to meet Australia's needs during the war. Um, in terms of, of workforce challenges, in addition to industrial action, um, the sheer number of working age men who actually went off and joined the war effort did slow the, the, the delivery of the program as well. That must have meant a loss of skilled men uh, in, a, in a, a place where skills were at a premium. Yeah, absolutely. It was, um, it was a real challenge to to meet this need that we had for, for warships amid the war, as so many school men were off, off in the war. Uh, James Goldrick, in the 1920s and 30s, Australia's naval defences had to be maintained within a very tight budget. How was that achieved while trying to maintain this local shipbuilding industry? Well, the experience in particular with the Adelaide and her cost and time overruns, and in fact the Adelaide was nicknamed uh, HMAS Long, Long Delayed, um, had rather scarred the... Uh, um, government's psyche on the subject of shipbuilding. Now, after the uh, 1923 Imperial Naval Conference, Australia had agreed to reinvest in its Navy um, with cruisers and submarines. Now, the submarines, there's no question uh, they were going, going to be built in the United Kingdom, but the cruisers became the subject of a major controversy. And indeed, um, uh, the question was whether it'd be worthwhile to build them in Australia uh, but it was quite clear that it was likely more expensive. And indeed, General Monash uh, was called in to do an inquiry um, as to what the relative benefits and costs were. And basically, it looked as if if you built the ships in the United Kingdom, they cost about £2 million. If you built them in Australia, um, it could be up to a million more for the total programme. Um, and what happened was that this was confirmed when the tenders were issued um, that the Australian bill would be much more expensive. So what the government decided to do was to have the cruisers built in the United Kingdom, but uh, the I think they expected to save about £800,000 um, on what they would have cost built in Australia. Uh, so they devote the £800,000 to building a seaplane carrier. It ended up costing uh, something over a million pounds, but it was very much um, this idea of, well, it's something useful to have, it's something we can build, and it's something that can keep 
cockatoo in employment. The ship itself, Albatross, was for its period quite a success, although it um, it only it, it didn't spend much time in operational Australian naval service. But it was very much this idea of how do we do something that's practicable, worthwhile, but isn't going to uh, cost so much that we simply can't afford to do it. Uh, John might want to comment because it, it really was a major project at an important time for Cockatoo. Indeed, John. Yes, the, the Albatross is a, is a very interesting project. Um, the, the designer of the ship, she was designed in the United Kingdom, commented that he had some of the most unusual requirements for the design of the ship that he'd ever had. And the priorities were a speed of 21 knots and a cost of not over one million pounds. Um, and Albatross uh, was built relatively quickly. Uh, she did exceed her original estimated cost, which was something in the vicinity of £850,000. But part of that was due to the fact of changing requirements during the course of design from effectively commercial construction to full naval standards, and that made a significant difference. Um, she kept some shipbuilding skills alive, but the 1920s and the 1930s were very difficult times for Australian naval shipbuilding uh, because there was very little of it. We'd had the war to end all wars. Um, very little money was being diverted uh, towards naval construction. Uh, and uh, it was difficult for the Commonwealth, who was still running Cockatoo Island in the 1920s, uh, to, uh, to keep the place going. Um, an attempt to take on commercial work was defeated in the High Court uh, after a challenge from um, commercial companies. Uh, and uh, the Commonwealth tried to sell the dockyard. They were unable to do so, but finally leased it in 1933, which freed up its ability to do commercial work. Uh, and also established during the 1930s a naval program, a small naval program of building sloops at Cockatoo Island, which was very fortunate because that enabled a resurrection of the uh, shipbuilding capability on Cockatoo Island and in Australia uh, in the lead up to World War II. Uh, uh, and to give you an idea of the, uh, the size of the development that that all helped to produce, uh, when the dockyard was leased, there were only a few hundred men working there, but uh, the numbers were well up uh, to 1,800-odd uh, prior to the war, uh, ready uh, for the uh, big expansion which occurred during World War II. So building ships isn't just a matter of economics. Uh, it's a matter of strategic importance, perhaps. Ahone, uh, would you like to talk about the strategic importance of maintaining a local warship building industry? Definitely. So, strategically, as, a, as an island nation that in the interwar period was quite concerned uh, by Japan, you know, increasingly sort of um, aggressive posture, Australia's main concern was, was defending its immense and really very vulnerable coastline. Um, and this concern is really highlighted, or heightened, sorry, due to the, the nation's strategic isolation and reliance on the British fleet and in particular the, the Singapore naval base for the defence of the Asia-Pacific. Um, so maintaining a local warship building industry, it means that Australia could make contributions to forward naval deployment as part of sort of this broader global imperial effort. And it also allowed the nation to make moves towards greater self-reliance in matters of naval defence. And as noted, these these contributions were, were quite modest and that it was small, very slim pickings 
for um, for the Navy in this interwar period. Um, but the construction of things like like the, the sloops that were um, those hardworking, multitasking vessels that are really ideal for defending coastal waters were very important when thinking about defending Australia. Um, and as, as Minister for Defence Archdale Parkhill noted at one point, um, these moves, small as they were, did aim to ensure that Australia was not forced to rely on overseas sources, which, which may not be available in the, in the time of war. And I think we really see the strategic value of Australia's shipbuilding capacity demonstrated um, following the fall of Singapore in, in 1942. So without a major hub in the Asia-Pacific to build and repair ships, Australia's dockyards become immensely important and they repair many of their own ships and many of um, the British and the American and the Dutch ships as well. Uh, thanks, Hone. You know, perhaps the clearest demonstration of the importance of a local uh, shipbuilding program in Australia is Captain John Collins's famous minute in Navy office uh, entitled A Plea for Smaller Sloops in Larger Numbers. And in the late 1930s, he asked for, for up to 42 ships of local, robust and simple design. And this resulted, I understand, in Australia's largest and most successful warship program, the construction of the Bathurst-class corvettes. And in the end, 60 corvettes were built for Australia, Britain, and India, including four built in Wyala. Uh, John, Jeremy, from a shipbuilding perspective, uh, can you outline the elements of this successful program and, and talk about the ingredients in what made it a success? Yes, the design of these ships was carried out in Australia. They're commonly known as corvettes, but they were originally classified as local defence vessels. One might say they were the 1930s equivalent of our modern offshore patrol vessel. Uh, they were designed in Australia and Cockatoo, which was the only yard actively building any ships in any quantity at the outbreak of uh, World War II, was given the task of being the lead yard for the construction of these ships in Australia, preparing uh, the working drawings and assisting the other yards, which were either created like Wyala or resurrected like uh, uh, others, um, uh, with lofting and, and other services and with people. Uh, the program was very successful because of the design of the ships, really. They were small and very simple. They were designed to commercial standards. Uh, the machinery and equipment which were uh, intended for them was uh, selected on the basis that it could be made in Australia. Um, a minimum of specialised work. Uh, the boilers, for example, were naval-style boilers, and they were made all made at uh, Cockatoo Island. Uh, but uh, the industry generally could contribute uh, to the building of these ships. And that program was really instrumental in reviving an Australian shipbuilding industry remarkably quickly uh, during the early years of World War II, an industry which went on uh, to build frigates uh, and also uh, to build a range of merchant ships uh, as part of a merchant shipbuilding program established in 1941. Thanks. Uh, if I can just add a point, um, if you go and visit the Castle Main, and I'm sure it's the same for the Wyala in Wyala, uh, but it's well worthwhile going around those ships. And I can point out the Castle Main, I think there's only two significant pieces of machinery which are not built in Australia. Um, it is practically entirely an Australian built product in every component. Doesn't it look like the flower class corvette that the Royal Navy built, though? There's a few differences. 
Uh, no, they're, they're really quite different. They, they actually were confused quite a lot with the Bangor-class minesweepers of the uh, Royal Navy. Uh, it's a little interesting when you look into some of the correspondence because we called them local defence vessels. Um, and uh, the uh, British Admiralty um, actually asked us to change the classification because it was causing some confusion in Britain. Well, we mustn't confuse the Admiralty. Uh, and they were reclassified as Australian minesweepers Bathurst class. But because of the role they fulfilled during the war, which was in effect the role of the corvette, they commonly became known as the corvettes and still are today. Mm, indeed. Thank you. Um, John briefly mentioned other vessels that were built in Australia during the Second World War. On a cuff, would you like to talk more about the, the extensive program of other ships being built during the Second World War? Yeah, so there were several other ships um, being built during the war. These are mostly small to medium in size. Um, particularly kind of important were the, the tribal-class destroyers that were also built at the Cockatoo Dockyard. And these were really versatile ships that were useful in close-range anti-aircraft um, with 4.7-inch quick-firing um, Mark 12 and the, the Vickers machine guns. Um, you also had the AV Crusader, which was an Australian Army cargo ship that was built at Williamstown. Um, this, this one was launched in the, the closing months of the war. The, the Crusader's main kind of activities were going on to retrieve Army personnel and equipment after the war. So these these, uh, these vessels that were built in the, the sort of latter parts of the, of the war um, went on to be quite important in the sort of... Um, recovery period, I suppose, and retrieval period um, after the war as well. Thanks. Uh, and we're moving through Australian naval history, uh, tracing the development of shipbuilding in, in, uh, in step with the Navy's history. And that brings us to the beginning of the Cold War. James Goldrick, um, with increasing sophistication of vessels, how did, uh, after 1945, how did the Australian shipbuilding industry cope with this Cold War fleet? Um, it was not an easy process, but it was uh, it was remarkable just what was achieved. The, it's quite clear that the uh, Navy are uh, thinking from late on in the war about what their future fleet will look like, and there are some um, false paths and uh, dis discussions about ships that might have been built that I think was a good thing never were, including a cruiser um, and some small destroyers. But there was came to be a realisation that uh, it was likely that the Navy was going to have to focus um, firstly on anti-submarine warfare and secondly on having an independent capability to project power, which was through the uh, uh, carrier force. And that anti-submarine capability was reflected in the programmes to build destroyers and to substantially uh, modify existing destroyers into anti-submarine specialist frigates. And of course, the big difference bet between um, after 1945 and before 1945 is that you have not the one major yard at Cockatoo, but two, and Williamstown Naval Dockyard outside Melbourne uh, became the second yard. And the construction program was always intended to run the two yards in parallel. We maintained a very close relationship with the British from the start. Uh, we also tried to keep up as much as possible with um, the latest 
tech technology that the British are adopting that Australia could afford. And that was manifested in, for example, uh, starting to manufacture um, 4.5-inch uh, mountings and guns uh, in Australia uh, to fit the uh, battle-class destroyers um, and then the daring-class destroyers and later on the river-class frigates. And that was indicative of the sort of increased local production that was steadily taking place. What also starts to happen is we start to look elsewhere uh, for systems and sensors, and that really starts to happen in the late 1950s. But what you can see is a progressive um, development of an ability to modify original British designs, sometimes to move on with those designs technologically uh, in terms of how they're built, but also to adapt them to meet Australian circumstances. There are a lot of problems with the programs from the start. Uh, it was a period of very high inflation, the old Australian perennial of shortage of labour and indeed industrial troubles, um, and also the fact that naval technology is changing all the time and getting more and more expensive. So in a time of inflation, costs were really difficult to cope with as well. Thanks, James. Uh, you've mentioned the uh, existence of both the Cocteau Island Dockyard and, and then joined by the Williamstown Naval Dockyard. John Jeremy, could you outline the rationale for the development of this twin dockyard, dockyard arrangement uh, and talk about the technical and industrial uh, challenges of that time? It's very interesting to look at the naval shipbuilding in the period after World War II. We talk a lot today about how our new naval shipbuilding program is the first time that we have set out to maintain a continuous naval shipbuilding program in Australia. It's not really true. Uh, that really began with the construction of the modern destroyers and then the Type 12 frigates um, at Cockatoo and Williamstown in the period after the war. If you have a look uh, at some of the records, um, when the Commonwealth was writing to the shipbuilders about the daring class, um, there's an interesting quote, and I'll quote it. It says, the approval and principle given by Cabinet to the building of four additional destroyers of an advanced type may be regarded as authority to proceed with the placement of orders um, to ensure the maintenance of shipbuilding capacity in Australia. And that was one of the aims of the whole thing. Because of the constraints on money uh, at the time, uh, there were a lot of conditions put on this whole program. Um, you couldn't lay down the second ship in each yard until the first had been launched uh, and approval had to be sought from Treasury before major orders for equipment were placed. And there were many delays with getting information from Britain where the priority was replacing merchant ships rather than building new destroyers. And at one stage, it was even thought that the detailed design of the daring should be brought back to Australia uh, and completed here. Two yards were really necessary for this program uh, because of the uh, physical constraints of both uh, and the availability of labour. And a partnership began between Cockatoo and Williamstown, uh, which continued right through until about 1970. Uh, and during that period, working with Navy Office, we developed in Australia a very considerable skill in the adaptation of other people's designs to suit Australian requirements. And I think I would put at the top of that process the last two of the destroyer escorts, Torrens and Swan, which were built in the 1960s. Uh, 
I wish I still had a copy, but it's fascinating to look at the uh, order uh, which was given to Cockatoo Dockyard to build Torrens. It was half a full scap page, and it was from the Department of the Navy because they placed the orders directly in those days. There was very little paperwork. And it simply said, to build one only Type 12 anti-submarine frigate, generally similar to HMAS Stewart, as previously constructed by your company. Full stop, price, TBA. Um, that was really all that was necessary. It was the only contract document. Because of the relationship and the understanding that the yards had of naval requirements and standards, um, they were both well capable of picking up uh, the ball and running with it. Uh, and by that stage, in the middle of the 1960s, uh, we were building uh, quite a few Australian-designed uh, auxiliaries and small warships uh, based upon that uh, arrangement that had persisted for the two decades, two or three decades after World War II. That's quite a contrast, John, to the situation today. Um, on a cuff, uh, John Collins has come into this story before, but I understand when he was Chief of Naval Staff, he gained the agreement of the Menzies government to build... Uh, 12 destroyers. Could you outline the background to this program? Yeah, so this is a really interesting program from a number of perspectives, like in terms of post-war defence and wartime lessons that were being applied to um, to programs and also post-war development of local industry. So the rapid success of Japan's Pacific campaign really brought home to Australia that the nation would have to sort of take on greater responsibility in regional defence in the post-war world. And our future defence would really rely on the preservation of strategic isolation. And that is controlling of the waters and the islands to Australia's north. Um, and so John Collins' bid for a new warship building program was part of this post-war defence policy. Um, the, the chosen destroyers were the, were the daring class, and um, these are large modern vessels with very good range and anti-aircraft systems. And the anti-aircraft system really reflected wartime lessons about the importance of, um, of defending against airborne coastal raids and securing Australia's strategic isolation. Um, so Cabinet approval for the local construction of these 12 new destroyers to be laid down in, I think, around... Um, 10-year sort of period. And as, as John sort of touched on before, this was a steady build with quite a number of sort of constraints. Um, so in supporting a really steady build period, um, Cabinet wanted to ensure Australia's shipbuilding industry remained stable and efficient and, and economically viable. Um, and that there's sort of a secondary benefit as well, that continuous long-term employment would be maintained um, uh, sorry, continuous a continuous long-term program would maintain employment and the shipbuilding industry was, of course, a really a good employer as well. So, yeah, a really interesting program in that sense. Uh, thanks, Hane. That's a beguiling vision. Um, so, James <laughs> Goldrick, it seems even in 1950, there was an appreciation that a long-term order book for warships was essential for efficiency, but apparently this didn't happen. Can you explain why? The key problem was money and the government's priorities after the Korean War. What happens is that Menzies <clears throat> and his government take a deliberate um, step to constrain the defence vote with the argument that economic development of Australia uh, was more important in grand strategic terms. Um, one could argue that that was um, a judgment that was right in retrospect. 
but it did mean that from about 1954 onwards, the defence budget is incredibly constrained and it is constrained more than really uh, is, pra is practicable for the Navy's ambitions. And what happens is that things slow down. And indeed, the Treasury, and I quote, talks about uh, the availability of funding every year. And, is, and it says, and I quote, approval should not exceed the essential minimum necessary to maintain production capacity. I'd argue that the money provided was rather less than the essential minimum and constant inflation didn't help. And it certainly bedeviled the, um, the dockyards and the ships were built at a much slower rate than was reflected the potential um, value for money that could have been achieved had they been allowed to be built somewhat faster. I mean, there were other problems. I've already mentioned them, and John um, would be much more uh, expert than I on them, so that the ships might have not appeared as fast as originally planned but they certainly would have appeared um, more quickly than was the result. Um, the first, the Daring class, didn't go to, um, didn't commission until 1957, and the other two didn't follow for a couple of years more. And the fourth, which would have been named Waterhen, actually had to be scrapped on the slip um, of Williamstown uh, because there simply wasn't enough money uh, to, to sustain her construction. And similarly, the uh, frigates, which meant to follow on from the destroyers, uh, were quite slow in coming out and didn't start to emerge until the 60s, which was several years after originally planned. They were all good ships, there's no question. And one of the points I want to make um, is it's clear from the first that Australian ship construction is generally of higher quality than the United Kingdom for equivalent ships. That's something that's manifest from the first with HMS Brisbane, and I think it was clear in the Daring class and the River class frigates, and it's been clear in more recent ships as well. But the point is they're taking much longer than planned, they're expensive to build, um, and it does turn off the government um, on the idea of whether it's worthwhile in defence terms doing this. So thank you very much, James. You've alluded to some of the problems of shipbuilding in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, John Jeremy is the expert on, on building ships because this is now moving into the period when you were actually building some of these ships. Could you talk about the problems of building ships such as HMAS Success or the destroyer tender HMAS Stalwart uh, in, in the, the yards that you worked with? Well, perhaps if I can go back and start again with Torrens and Swan, because that was an interesting project. Um, the orders were placed for those two ships uh, to replace Voyager, effectively, after she'd been lost in 1964. Uh, and they were intended as generally similar to HMAS Stewart, as I, as I said. But within six months, we had decided to redesign those ships, um, an initiative of Navy Office to put uh, different electronics and combat systems on board and to rearrange and to modernise the machinery plant. Uh, excellent decisions, but I would never ever recommend to anybody that you try and design a ship while you're actually building it. Uh, it was a tortuous program. Um, the ships had been intended to be completed in four years, but actually took six years and a lot more money, and I think were some of the finest Type 12s ever built anywhere in the world, and there were 70 of them. Um, but I don't think that anyone really quite explained enough to the politicians why this was so. 
and Torrens was the last combat warship to be completed in Australia uh, for 22 years before the first of the Australian-built FFGs came out of Williamstown many years later. Um, so we really began after that a, a serious period of stop-go in, in naval construction. And success uh, is a, a, a project that I was deeply involved in effectively for 20 years because the uh, plan to replace HMS Supply, the fleet tanker, began in the middle of the 1960s and we were involved in that and proceeded to the design of an Australian ship which would have been HMAS Protector, a very fine um, uh, full naval standard replenishment ship of about 20,000 tonnes. Uh, but uh, that project, along with our ambitious light destroyers, also basically Australian design, uh, were cancelled in the early 1970s because of the increased cost. And I think also uh, what would have emerged as difficulties in building the ships because of changed means of procurement of equipment by the Commonwealth, and it's a very long story. But uh, ultimately, uh, after the cancellation of Protector, uh, plans were developed to choose an existing overseas design uh, which could be adapted for Australian requirements, and that ship became HMAS Success. The ship design that was chosen was based upon the French Durance class of fleet tanker. I would say it's a very fine design, um, but the ship that we ultimately were contracted to build um, was an export version of the first of class, modified to be modified by 40 Australian design changes and 140-odd material substitutions and built in accordance with the drawings of the second ship of the class insofar as they represented what was called the baseline ship. Now, this was a convoluted way of defining a ship uh, and any variation um, from the baseline ship represented in the working drawings um, uh, required a change to the contract. And before long, we had something like 600 of these items lined up, uh, and uh, it overwhelmed the project team in Canberra. Uh, and it would have taken us 12 years if we hadn't done something about it to work through all those changes. Um, on top, we ultimately re renegotiated the contract, redefined the ship entirely, developed a closer relationship with the French, uh, and once all that was resolved, it was a straightforward and very, very rewarding shipbuilding project. Uh, but there were other difficulties as well, because uh, we as a shipyard hadn't built a decent-sized ship for a long while, and in the late 1970s, early 1980s, we had to resurrect our shipbuilding capability both with new equipment in the yard and more people. Now, Australia was in the middle of a recession in the early 1980s, which one might think would make it easy for us to get labour. It wasn't. Um, and uh, we had to institute an overseas recruiting program. We interviewed 400 people in the United Kingdom and imported 100, ranging from naval architects to boilermakers and welders. Um, we... Uh, ultimately had to enormously increase our apprentice training program as the best way uh, to get you uh, people skilled in the, in this, in, with the skills that we needed for the work. So all of this resulted in a, a substantial delay to success, um, compounded by things like the Shorter Working Week campaign uh, of 1980-1981, uh, uh, which really put pressure on everybody in Australia and industry and caused delays. In the end, um, we developed uh, an extremely good relationship with the French because 
we were working with a shipbuilding culture which was quite different to the one we were used to. But once we got to know each other, uh, the relationship was first class uh, and uh, the ship um, uh, turned out to be in every way the success uh, in, in the way she was named. Um, I would have loved to have built the second one for which money ran out uh, and we couldn't do so uh, because it would have been a much easier task than success. You mentioned Stalwart. Um, Stalwart was a similar sort of size to success. She was built in the 1960s and she was um, the biggest ship of that number of ships which I commented had been designed in Australia for the Royal Australian Navy. She was a much simpler ship than success. Um, she was designed uh, and uh, built uh, to commercial standards, but she was designed in Australia and the shipyard, namely Cockatoo, was the detailed designer. Um, we did uh, the serious design work uh, based upon the preliminary design work which had been done by Navy office in Canberra. Uh, and that made it a lot easier. And in those days, we still had this enormous group of skills uh, in Navy office and in the dockyard uh, which was well used to working to each, with each other, uh, which made it all happen, much of which we lost, sadly, during the 1970s. Thanks, John. And that's not just history. That's for you. That's personal history. And that gives your explanation all the more power. Um, Hone Kuff, we've d discussed the, uh, John's discussed this uneven history in local shipbuilding. And then in the 1980s, the, the Hawke government and Minister for Defence Kim Beasley embarked on an ambitious program of building the Collins-class submarines and the Anzac-class frigates. So can you explain why that development occurred? So, yeah, Kim Beasley really was quite the champion of um, the, um, particularly of the Collins-class submarine um, and remains sort of a staunch supporter of it in more recent years when it sort of has been criticised for its sort of capabilities and costs and construction timeline. And, um, at the time, he really wanted to see Australia reduce its reliance on overseas supplier, uh, suppliers. He was primarily coming at this issue from a fiscal and skills point of view. So warships, and in particular submarines, are immensely expensive to, to lay down and to maintain over their operational lives. And Beasley argued that this cost could be constrained uh, by kind of a closer access to building yards and technology and specialists actually in Australia. So thinking about this, not only would the Collins and Anzac construction programs significantly expand Australia's lo local shipbuilding uh, capacity, it had the potential effect of transferring technologies in mechanical engineering and electronic systems. And the hope was that these new technologies could go on to support future defence requirements and stimulate other local industries. Um, and so uh, at, at the time of sort of recovery from, from recent recession, these, this is very important to, to sort of Australian policymakers. Um, I think it's really interesting that these debates around local building and um, the kind of cost aspects um, are being sort of repeated when we're thinking about the attack class submarines and where this will be built and if it should be built in Australia and the cost of that, I think, yeah, it's really interesting to look at those parallels. Thanks. So, Hane, you've, you've discussed the relationship between uh, operational requirements and the political and industrial and, and uh, economic um, aspects of the development of, of warships. And that leads us to turn to James Goldrick again. Um, these largely successful programs laid the foundations for the first, the, uh, the construction of the Hobart-class destroyers, 
and now the current program of building submarines, frigates, and patrol vessels. So, James, can you explain the ingredients that would lead to success in that program? I think they're, they're pretty straightforward, and I think the ANZAC class demonstrates them most. Um, the ANZAC class was a program which the government committed to from the start. It was going to have eight Australian ships. The government um, worked very hard on the New Zealanders, uh, but also made it worth New Zealand's while. And it was really a thing of mutual benefit to add two hulls to the program to make it 10 ships. And what happens is you see um, with a build schedule that is an efficient one, and effectively a ship was being produced every year, um, that is continued for an extensive period where there are, once you've decided on your design and decided on your weapon and sensor of fit, that you minimize the changes to the successive units. Um, that's not to say that you don't have some design changes as, as you learn things. But what happens is the um, there's a learning curve which really starts to create terrific efficiencies after two or three units. And indeed, it's quite clear that by the end of the program, I think the cost uh, of the hull propulsion hotel systems, in other words, the ship without the uh, weapon sensors, combat management and communications, uh, between the 1st and the 10th, uh, I think the, real, uh, the reduction in real terms was about 27%. And I believe also that we'd reached the point with the ANZAC program where we could produce those ships cheaper than the German shipyard would have been able to quote for. Um, but it's this continuity, uh, it's having a drumbeat that is reflects what's the most efficient rate. In other words, where's, what's keeping the workforce across the board properly employed but not overstressed, um, that the government's willing to continue committing the money um, and also that you do have a discipline about changes and about evolution. Um, if you achieve all those things, then that's what you get, a highly successful program. It wasn't perfect. Um, the ANZAC class, of course, has evolved tremendously since then. We always called it the Holden rather than the, than the Mercedes. Uh, again, good enough was the enemy of the best. Uh, but it was definitely a success. And I think it was this continuity, commitment and discipline uh, that were important. I just want to make a point about the Collins class, uh, which has had a checkered history. Um, but there were two points about the Collins class, uh, which have basically tarnished the reputation of what's actually a very successful design. One is the uh, combat system, the computer uh, control system for the, we the weapons and sensors we got wrong. Uh, the thing is, everybody in the world got that one wrong at the same time, and that cost a lot of money. But more important was the fact that the contingency funding for the Collins class, which was much more complex than the ANZAC, was very much a design just for Australia, was tiny. And it was so small that it meant there was not enough money to fix prototype problems, which were inevitable, and those prototype problems accumulated and poisoned the relationship. And it was only when money was put in um, to fix those prototype problems that we started to get the boat achieving the, the, the potential. 
many of the problems since have been associated with um, lack of maturity about our need, about our understanding of the support systems for highly complex submarines. But for the Collins class, that lack of contingency funding for a highly for a prototype that nobody else has uh, has got um, was a really key problem. And it's one of the things in the new programs we have to bear in mind, particularly with the attack class submarine. Thanks, James. You're really pointing to the fact that shipbuilding is something which isn't just a matter of building individual ships. It's a matter of managing complex problems over literally decades. Um, John Jeremy, we haven't covered the hugely successful Austral shipyard in Western Australia, and that yard's built aluminium warships for the United States, Australia, and other navies. Can you discuss why that yard has been so successful? Well, it's not the only successful yard. I'd uh, um, put uh, alongside it in Cat and Tasmania. Um, when the government subsidy for merchant shipbuilding in Australia was gradually withdrawn during the 1970s, um, the large yards closed, not surprisingly, because they were building the kind of ship which you could much more easily build um, in Asia and places like that. Uh, they were certainly innovative shipbuilders. Um, Australia designed and built the world's first cellular container ship. Uh, we led the world in the introduction of industrial gas turbines to ship propulsion and things like that. But the large shipbuilding industry declined and effectively disappeared at the end of the 1970s. But there was a smaller element of shipbuilding, uh, usually privately owned, um, uh, very lean in its management and very entrepreneurial in its outlook. And the success of yards like Austal in Western Australia and Incat in Tasmania has been one of innovation and specialization in something that nobody else really does quite as well as we do. Uh, and uh, Australia has developed a position of being, uh, I would say, the world's leader, some might say one of the world's leaders, in the production, design and production of high-speed aluminium ships. And it is from that uh, that uh, they have uh, developed uh, a substantial world market, and most of the ships that they build are for export and not for an Australian market. Um, if you'd asked me and others in the industry in the 1970s, uh, did I believe that uh, come the turn of the 21st century, uh, the United States would be building ships that were designed in Australia? I would have not believed it for a moment. But that is what's happened. Um, based upon very successful ferry designs, um, Austal was successful um, in uh, getting uh, an order for the literal combat ships of the independence class, which are uh, trimarans, the high-speed aluminium trimarans, which they build in the United States, where you have to build if you're going to build for the US. In some ways, the US was more adventurous than Australia uh, in uh, uh, warship design and building. We tend to be terribly cautious and um, not uh, take technical risks. Uh, but um, it's been a remarkable achievement. Uh, today, both yards are still building for export. Um, they uh, suffer as often complex industries in Australia do suffer from shortages of skilled people. And Austal now has yards uh, in uh, the Philippines and in Vietnam uh, and uh, at a relationship with a yard in China It has become, uh, as well as the US yard, of course, in Alabama, and has become an Australian-owned multinational shipbuilding company. Uh, it's innovation. Uh, it's uh, uh, looking outside the square 
and getting on with the job in a very competitive environment. We have absolutely no shortage of skilled and smart people in Australia. Uh, we can do lots of things. And uh, if we do it right, when building our hunter-class frigates and our attack-class submarines, we can continue to maintain and support these skilled people and contribute to the future, not only uh, for ships and submarines for the Australian Navy, but working with our partners overseas, uh, contribute to a much wider um, alliance and, uh, and market area than uh, we have enjoyed in the past. Mm. You've certainly seen some changes over the course of your career, John. Um, to conclude, I'll ask each of our panellists for their final thoughts on the relationship between shipbuilding and the Royal Australian Navy. Um, first, Dr. Honé Cuff. So I have a sort of tendency when I'm thinking about these things to, to look at the big picture history and, and the, sort of follow the trends that I see. And I think in reflecting on Australia's warship building history, I'd want to really bring out a point of, of the really interesting theme of progressive self-reliance. And really, I think this theme is, is echoed in contemporary debates around our local, our local workforce, particularly our local shipbuilding workforce and how efficient it is and how efficient it can be, as, as John has discussed. And, and in particular, how, how we will defend Australia in the future as our geopolitical setting is changing and, and really the critical role that the Navy has to play in this. Thanks. Uh, uh, James Goldrick, your thoughts? I'd, I'd pick up from Honai and, and agree with her, and it's really this idea of progressive self-reliance. I think it's the discipline we need to apply of understanding what's unique to the Australian condition and what we need to do for ourselves and what designs we need to modify for ourselves and what we can simply take from other people. Um, and if we apply that discipline and then systematically um, organise for in-country effort, then I think that's the way to get both, both the best value for money and the best practical solution. But there has to be a discipline to it. Australia um, has always been, de been bedeviled by lack of um, shortage of skills at every level. And that means that we have to pick and choose what we do ourselves and what we simply take from other people. Mm, thank you. And John Jeremy, looking back on a lifetime of ship construction, what are your thoughts? Well, I agree with James. Um, the, the, one of the things that many people don't understand is uh, why do we have to build ships in Australia? Why don't we just buy them from someone else? After all, uh, we do that with aircraft and we do it with cars. It's not entirely correct that even today uh, there's, a, there's a significant input from the Australian aerospace industry into the construction, design and construction of aircraft and also with the automotive industry. Uh, they're worldwide global industries. Uh, but uh, the shipbuilding is this, uh, and design and the construction of ships in Australia, perhaps in partnership with overseas companies, um, enables us to sustain the skills uh, to run a navy uh, in all aspects, to provide the ships that we need to support them and to modify them through life. Uh, because when uh, things get really desperate, we've got to be able to rely on our own capabilities. Um, they're there. Uh, if we provide the continuity and provide the discipline, uh, as James says, uh, then I think there's every hope that the programs that we're embarking upon will succeed. Mm. 
Thank you, John. And sadly, that's all we have time for. But but thank you all to Dr. Hane Cuff, uh, Admiral Dr. James Goldrick and John Jeremy for their contributions to this important um, and, and profoundly significant uh, subject for not just the Royal Australian Navy, but for the Australian nation. This podcast has been produced by the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales, Canberra. Its production is supported by the Royal Australian Navy Sea Power Centre, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia, and the Submarine Institute of Australia. Thank you for joining us. And for more information on the Australian Naval History podcast series, simply search for Naval Studies Group on your search engine. Goodbye for now.